Welcome to the Austin New Church Podcast. My name is Melinda Tabb, and I'm one of the youth pastors here. We are a progressive faith community dedicated to the pursuit of inclusion and social justice. Whether you're a beloved out-of-towner or are just catching up, please enjoy this week's message. All right, all right. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. Anybody know it's Kevin Burpo's birthday today? Kevin, you look so good for 24, except you're not. No, Kevin Burpo. It's your birthday, right, Kevin? Oh, is this your birthday too? Oh, you look good. And that ain't no kind of lie on a Sunday morning in Texas, let me just tell you. All right. Well, I got the mic, so you got to wait your turn. How's that? Welcome, all of you guys. It's so good to see some of you back from a conference in Atlanta, some of you back from a retreat in Hill Country yesterday. We got people going every which direction. We got a few people who opted for Barton this morning, and I don't hate you for that. Look at the days out there. These are the days that we try to keep real quiet. Don't let Michigan know about these days, because I'll be moving down here, or California, but of course that already happened. But That's not actually how the sermon begins, and I better get to it or I'm going to be in trouble. Here's how it starts. Ready? Ready? Hello, you. <laughs> That's my favorite thing to do now. Welcome to ANC. Say that to somebody next to you. Say, hello, you. Do it. Come on, all you introverts. You can stretch a little in church. Ain't going to kill you. All right, now turn to yourself and say, hello, doubt. There you are. Welcome to breakfast. So this is my last sermon. I wish my heart would have stopped there. If you're going to opt for a place to die, that would have been fun. That's so not even funny. But this is my last sermon for a couple of weeks. Next week, you're going to be hearing from, from Laura Hollers, uh, so get ready for that. The week after that, we have Stan Mitchell coming back, who we adore. Stan will be sharing on Mother's Day because it seems appropriate since he's not a mother. Right? And I don't like to tell you what to do ever, and I mostly try to resist, but I will this just, just this one time. Don't miss the next couple weeks. Whatever the weather does, don't miss the next couple weeks. So the sermons in this series that we've entitled Hello Doubt, Welcome to Breakfast have been some of the most enjoyable to write and to deliver of my entire ministry. Now, I'm not that old. I've only been doing this for 20 some odd years, but these have been some of the absolute most fun to work with. But mine is just one angle. It's just one voice. And so this community is much uh, more rich in talent than just uh, one person or two people. So in the next few months, Be looking forward to hearing more from Catherine and from Laura and from Melinda and from Akshay. And maybe we'll get Colby back. We got Stan coming back. Sam owes us another visit. We'll be hearing hopefully from BT not too long from now. So we keep it active around here. Also, when the rabbi returns from his sabbatical, which he's taking a a 90-day sabbatical starting in June, he's going to be coming back to speak to us. And that's going to happen right after Trey and I have been invited to speak to his congregation at the opening Sabbath for the Festival of Booths in September. So there's a lot of really fun things going on. If you know me, you know this is true. I have an unusual amount of fun doing my job. I just absolutely love this work because you guys are so amazing. It's like driving a finely tuned 1969 Triumph TR6 650, to be honest. That's exactly exactly what it's like. And of course, you have no idea what that's like because I'm describing my motorcycle there. Well, while we're technically now in the season of Eastertide, we're roughly halfway between Easter and Pentecost, which is the season of Easter. To be precise, we're right in the middle. And today's gospel reading doesn't fall, though, within the same time frame as the last several weeks. Meaning, this story from the memory of John the Baptist today, it does not take place between the resurrection and the disappearance of Jesus. 
And that's just to say that that tender Jesus that we've been looking at now for three weeks, yeah, well, that's not the one that we're going to look at today. This is outlaw Jesus. This is the Jesus that hangs out at the sagebrush. Anybody else hang out at the sagebrush? Oh, my God, I'm the only one, Trey. (laughs) At Nate's, let's say. This is outlaw Jesus. This is Willie Nelson Jesus, friends. This is Johnny Cash Jesus. I wanted to put up the picture so bad of him with the middle finger, but I just, this is church and we can't do that. This is Sebastian Vettel Jesus, if you're a race car fan. This is Jesus doing what he can to light up the paddock and burn down the saloon. The Jesus that we're gonna be peeking at today is not that tender Jesus between the resurrection and the ascension. Today's story dropped us right back into the tail end of a heated exchange that Jesus had with the religious authorities before he was murdered for insubordination. Now remember, do you remember the story of the man born blind? Remember this from a few weeks ago? Remember how the disciples come to Jesus and they inquire about who had sinned, this man or his parents, because obviously someone had pissed God off to deserve such an unremediable situation? Do you remember that? I spoke on the first part of that story several weeks ago as it came to us from the lectionary. Well, today the lectionary takes us back for whatever reason and picks up right about where that story leaves off, basically. Now, we're still circling our attention as a congregation, though, around the subject of doubt, which I hope has been helpful to you. I received this photo last Sunday afternoon from Jay Friels as I was relaxing after church. That's some of the best-looking folks we have around here, I guess you could say. And it came with the following caption. Just leave it up for a second. It came with the following caption. Jay writes, the doubt conversation raged, to which I responded, I doubt y'all solved anything. To which Jay responded, nope, and we know it. To which I responded, that must be why you guys are so wise. It has nothing to do with the fact that you're 800 years old, Jay. <laughs> Is he in the building? He's not even in the building. We're gonna, hammer, we're gonna hit him hard today. <laughs> He's watching online. Jay, we love you, anyway. But I hope that all that just to say, I hope that the conversation around doubt is actually raging around this little community. I hope that it is. That's why we're taking the risk to have this conversation. I hope that you are finally beginning to come out of the closet of your doubt denial, which the church taught you to do. It's fair. It's not a mistake. It's just what we were taught to do. And I hope that these ideas, I hope you figured out that these ideas actually belong in your conversations. I hope you're talking about them with friends who've been injured by the church, the ones specifically perhaps that have left the church because of doubt. All right, pop quiz. What was Jesus' preferred method or modality of teaching? Anyone? Stories? Parables? Who said parables? Yeah, parables. That's right. Why did Jesus teach primarily in parables? Anyone? Why do you think he taught in parables? To make people think? What else? Perhaps to secure the message? Maybe to be... To obscure obscure the message. Now, that's an interesting take. We could camp there for a week. You mean he's hiding the, he's hiding the, the, the gummy bear or whatever under the, what, what do you hide under? I don't coins, game show stuff. I think I always thought that Jesus taught in parables so that he could be most understood by common folk, right? To be understood. But my question to you then today, and I'm, I'm, I'm taking us somewhere. Was he understood when he taught in parables? I mean, was Jesus understood by the people that he taught using those earthy agrarian metaphors and images? Now, careful before you answer too quickly. And this is where Myrtle elbows her husband and says, gosh, I thought we were hearing the preacher talk about doubt today. Why are we talking about parables? Just stay with me. We're going to go somewhere. 
One of my favorite common features of the parables of Jesus, as preserved by his close friends, were those elaborate explanations that he offered mostly to the disciples in private immediately following the teachings. Now, you can see them in your text if you look closely enough. These were the little huddles that were, of course, necessitated naturally by their lack of understanding of what was going on and what, had, what they had just heard. Friends, not a ton of this stuff was understood, not even the parables. Por ejemplo, this being Texas, what would the parable of the sower or the parable of the seeds be without Jesus' elaborate explanation that followed? The disciples had no idea how to glue all those ideas together they had liter- that they had literally just heard him teach. In fact, in some cases, in these parable exchanges, the explanations of these parables are much longer. They hold more real estate than even the teachings themselves. So, So what's my point here? Friends, I'm trying to help you look again at the stories of your own Christian tradition, to look again at them with a different set of eyes, trying to help you look at it for the textual evidence of doubt and disbelief so that you don't feel crazy anymore when you look down inside and you say, hmm, really? I'm always trying to help you deal more honestly with your response to these old, diverse, oftentimes indecipherable teachings. See, Jesus spent three public years building an almost unbelievable world. How do we know it was almost unbelievable? Because his dearest friends could barely believe it. If his closest friends could not follow along, then surely we get some grace as we navigate these mixed and sometimes muddy metaphors. Okay, I guess one question could be, Are they, these parables, still worth mining for meaning? Some would say no. I would say, of course they are. Are they simple to understand and apply? Well, you maybe were taught that they were, but I've got two degrees in this stuff and I still get lost all the time. The same people who, presumably at a Texas summer youth camp probably, led you to believe that all of the teachings of Jesus were literal and simple and had only one possible interpretation, probably also taught you that theirs was the only right interpretation. And I'm willing to bet you that their literal, singular, authorized interpretation is only a few generations old. How funny is that? Well, today's story is an example of a parable that has been taught, that has been used to do great damage to what I believe is the actual message of Jesus. So humor humor me now for a few moments and think of your answer to these questions. Does Jesus not teach a wide open gospel? Does he not? Does Jesus not spend his time welcoming the very people that he, sarcasm bunnies, should have been rejecting? Is Jesus not the one who takes existing religious thought and reconfigures it to include people formerly considered enemies? Is Jesus not the, very, the same mystic who draws all things into single points of convergence, like love and mercy and inclusion? I would answer yes to all of those questions personally, and for the most part, I'm guessing, if you're here, you would probably lean in that direction as well. Then what are we to do, friends, with today's text from John 10? Now, perhaps I should stop teasing you with the text and just read it. I'm tempted to, but before I do, a few more thoughts. Hang with me. <laughs> Are we bold enough to talk openly about Christian exclusivism yet, friend? Are we bold enough to challenge head-on, finally, the Roman Catholic and the Reformed Protestant claims that salvation is reserved exclusively for the participants in their respective Christian communities? Are we ready? After a preaching series on religious trauma and now one on the subject of doubt itself, have we built enough safety and trust together in this little space to engage open-hearted conversation around what, in my view, is the most problematic of all Christian claims, that everyone is out except us. 
In all likelihood, some of you would say without hesitation that we have in fact built that kind of safety and trust. Some of us have been literally disintegrating together for years now. <laughs> some of us have played key roles in one another's healing. But there are others of you in the room and in the audience that are new, and there's no way you can affirm yet such claims about the safety of this community. You st you're just still too new around here, and there's nothing wrong with that. You're on the front side of entry still. In fact, hear me say this. There's nothing wrong with that. Hear me say this. Take your time. Never rush safety. Never, ever. If you want my all-time best advice in the history of history about anything at hand, here's what it is. Trust your body with your own well-being. Don't push it and don't let it be dragged anywhere by anyone against your inner wisdom. Maybe we should have just stopped there. I mean this, friends. If you're not yet certain that a church or any church can be trusted to convene such a conversation where we think through the ramifications of Christian exclusivism, then just listen along for a moment, it's okay. Someday you'll remember you heard this go down in Austin, Texas and somewhere in the middle of 2023. My question remains, are we ready to do this? So now let's go slow. Oh yeah, one more thing. Beyond the question of ANC and whether or not we can be trusted to safely conduct this conversation, perhaps the more important epistemic question might be, in general, can places of hurt even become places of healing? Can a church not unlike the very place that your human agency was first questioned and taken in exchange for a sense of belonging, can any place like that somehow conjure the right space where with the right care we can experience a breakthrough of transformation and healing. Well, friends, I can tell you this much as your pastor that I'm staking the future of this little house on the hope that the answer to that question is yes. I'm a little more than entirely invested now in the idea that we get to heal together in this place of wounding if we're careful how we do the work. Now, any mathematicians in the room? Did you hear what I just did there? I know more than entirely is really bad maths, okay? Forgive the foreshadow. You'll see why I said those two words together. I say bad because we're eventually going to talk about sheep today, and I say maths because it drives Americans crazy, but it's how Tony and Rachel say it in England, and so I'm going with the former neighbors of Cape Middleton, bite me, Texas. What can I say? It's maths to them. Besides bad math on a brand, on a, besides bad math is, is, is on brand for me. My college statistics professor spoke only Mandarin, not a word of English, so I can't be held accountable for what I don't know when it comes to math. <laughs> I love telling well-dressed people at music events around town that their hat game is 12 out of 10. It confuses people, right? And that way they know if they ever follow me back to this little church, which sometimes they do, they'll just know to expect bad math because you can't pull 12 out of 10, right? So that little moment of comedic relief brought to you by the need to lighten the moment since the question that I just tabled, friends, is impossibly difficult to sit with. I learned about the comedic relief moments in Shakespeare before I understood anything about the Bible. Oh, darn it, I just lost my thought train. Let me see, where was I? Oh yeah, here, here's where I am. I'm a little more than entirely convinced at this point and entirely invested in this idea that we get to heal together as a faith community, in community, if we're careful how we do the work, I think we can turn places of injury into places of healing. So now today, we get to take an honest look at the prickliest of all Christian doctrines. Friends, I don't know if you've noticed this in the neighborhood where you live, but most people in your life no longer see Christian exclusivism as incorrect. They see it now as immoral. 
It's time we name and unwind something that many of us began to doubt long ago privately. So welcome to what's about to happen next. It might be our last Sunday. I bought new shoes if it's my last Sunday because you just always want to go out with new shoes. Now we've taken our time getting here and to be crystal clear, I am not asking you to agree entirely with me. Hold your own flight pattern. Navigate this as you are ready and able. Feel inspired, perhaps receive permission, but don't feel dragged or pushed anywhere. Take your time with this big epistemic question of faith. So now let's read together the passage, often used to clobber doubters. So here's the loop that I'm trying to bring us back to. This little parable has become part of the bedrock of Christian exclusivism in some circles, and it comes to us from John chapter 10. It reads this way. Very truly, I tell you, anyone, this is Jesus speaking in case that wasn't clear. Very truly, I tell you, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate, but climbs in by another way is a thief and a bandit. And just for Texas, can we just say it's good to have one of our words put into into the text. It's good to have a bandit in there. Verse two, the one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. When he was brought out, When he has brought out all of his own, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. Verse five, they will not follow a stranger, but they will run after him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this figure of speech, which is an internal way that John says he's speaking parabolically. He's speaking in metaphor. Jesus uses this figure of speech with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Now, friend, I don't know if you're seeing the doubt in the text for the first time, but it's always been there. Your Bible has always read this way. I'm not adding anything. Verse seven. So again, and here comes his explanation. Jesus said to them, probably pulling the disciples aside, very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and bandits, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Verse 11, switching metaphors. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, who is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and runs away, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. The hired hand runs away because a hired hand does not care for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. We're almost done. And this verse 16 blows my mind. I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life in order to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have power to lay it down, or I have power to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. Okay, so we could go a thousand different directions with this passage. There's simply too many ideas here to chase in a single Sunday, so we'll just need to stay focused. My question for you, who's got the mic? What do you take away from this discourse? Very briefly, what do you take away from this? Someone. We love to mic folks around here. It seems like in the first part of that um, speech that Jesus is giving, he's, he's delineating between people who are following him mm. and people who are proclaiming him. And if there's a, disparate, a right. disparity there, it's- follow Jesus and not the proclaimer, Hmm. and that's the first thing that jumped out at me. Interesting. What else do you guys see here? Now think back to Texas hot summer dirty dusty youth camp. What were you taught about this?
Well, I was always taught that um, there is only one way to heaven. That there is or isn't? There is right, only one way to heaven. Sure. But it really does seem to me like he's talking about how him laying down his life is like a blanket over uh, all of humanity. Uh, I love that. Yeah. That came after Texas Youth Camp. They didn't teach you for all of humanity, did they, Julie? <laughs> we have a comment up here. Tara, front row. What'd he say? What'd he say? Um, I, I think we were taught it was a very us, them, we, they uh, mentality. So mm, Who concurs with that by show of hands? Let's just treat this like a classroom, like a seminary classroom, y'all. I'm going to ask you to think today. Trey, you can have a seat. Thank you. Sure seems like Jesus is making the case here that he is the only way to salvation, though. Right? But let's have a second look. Let's look a little deeper. We must not, we cannot, friends, read this parable in isolation from the things that are going on around it. Now, don't forget, Jesus had just stirred the hornet's nest with the healing of the man born blind in chapter 9. Jesus, at least in the metaphors native to the thinking of John the Baptist, he often talked about spiritual leadership as shepherding, which isn't all that helpful for us. Not many of us have sheep that we have to put in a pen at night, but that was John's imagery often. So right on the heels of the Pharisee's decision to literally drive the man who had been healed out of community because he refused to besmirch the name of the man who healed him, right after Jesus does this, he uses that moment as a teaching moment. I'm sorry, after the Pharisees do this, he uses that as a teaching moment to discuss spiritual leadership in general. Now notice, Jesus refers to himself as the gate, not the shepherd, at least not at the beginning of this extended discourse. He calls himself the good shepherd in verse 11, but not initially. Mixed metaphors for the wind, so you're going to have to track closely with them here. At first, at least, he's the gate, which is interesting to me because the church of my youth always seemed to want the full control of the gate. Am I right? That's why we had seven services a week. It was important to know who was in and who was out. At the very least, the church wanted to be the gatekeeper. Maybe not the gate owner, but certainly they were the keepers of the gate. I mean, have you thought through the logical ramifications of things like church excommunication? Have you ever seen one of those? I have. Or burning heretics at the stake. No, I haven't seen that. Don't worry about that. But have you ever thought through the ramifications of burning someone at the stake to keep the faith pure? Like how poorly did you understand the faith if that's how you keep it pure? Have you processed through the implications of denying people access to the Eucharist for any reason? I don't care. Have you thought through that? Friends, that's how an organization acts that honestly believes that it holds the keys to the gates of salvation. The church of our youth, right? At any rate, I'm sure you can see why this passage has been interpreted as supportive of categorical claims about Jesus being the only way to salvation. But there's something we need to understand if we're gonna get this right, okay? And this is the kind of thinking that rarely turns up in local churches, but y'all are plenty smart enough, I know who you are. Track with me. Now, in theological academia, we study a subset of systematic theology called Christology. And in Christology, theologians ask the following questions. What did the life of Christ mean? Or what do we mean when we say God was in Christ? Or what things can we affirm as true about God as observed in the life and teachings of Jesus? Or, I suppose more specifically and more germane to today's discussion, what do we mean when we say that Jesus is the only way to salvation? Now, follow me. This will be important. When we say Jesus is the only way, we're saying that the only way to God is through what we learned about God in Christ. You follow? Am I explaining that well enough? For example, if according to John the Beloved, 
Jesus was always with the Father, even before the creation of the cosmos, that's John chapter one. What we're actually saying is that the humanity and the society of God was not a new innovation in the first century. It wasn't unique to Jesus. We were reminded of it in Jesus, perhaps, but it was always already true. Okay, track. See, if I, I, that sounds so condescending. Stop saying that, Jason. That's condescending too when you talk to yourself in front of people. Isn't that weird? I'm gonna stop saying, this is so important, friends. This is so important. Jesus reminded us of what was always true about the divine and the material worlds that we used to think were separate. He reminded us, namely, that both give birth and ongoing nurture to the other, okay? If that feels like a dangerously long leap, read Jesus again. Closer this time, closer still, I believe that this is what he's trying to say. Therefore, when we say, as does Jesus, according to John, I am the way to the Father, and any other way except through me is the work of bandits and thieves who steal, what we're saying, to quote Catherine, is that the way, of the, full, sorry, the way to the full truth about God begins with that idea that flesh and God co-dwell, co-exist, co-create, and that all people belong to God, no exceptions. That's what we say, we're saying when we say Jesus. I wonder if that makes sense to you. You tell me, friend, could there be any other honest treatment of the life and teachings of Jesus as we know them? In fact, given what John teaches us about Jesus through this whole gospel narrative, the only ones who, actually, who Jesus consistently excludes are the excluders themselves. I wonder if you can see the logic here now. And even they, the ones, those that exclude, in the end, receive so much of Jesus' attention and conversation, they can hardly be seen as not included. So reading this passage carefully now, with a watchful eye on good Christology, we can say this, the gate to the safety and protection of God's abundance as embodied in Jesus is open to all except those who close it on others. Are we okay? Everybody breathing? Which of course means that the true gate to the fullness of life or abundance, as Jesus calls it, is through the posture and assumption that all people are God's people already. Friends, if that's the case, and I would argue endlessly that it is, then this is no passage in support of Christian exclusivism at all. When we refer to Jesus, we're referring to what we know to be true about God as embodied in the actual man, friends, but it always goes beyond just the man, and it always folds in the entirety of Jesus' teachings. It's what we know about God through his life. It's not all that is known about God, it's what we have access to based on our story. Now, you get to decide if your preacher is just plumb crazy or somehow smudging up your sacred text. That's an important question that you need to ask yourself. You should ask it all the time. I won't steer you on answering that question except to say this, your heart knows already that all people belong to God, all people, no exceptions. And if that's the heart of the teaching of Jesus, then that's the gate, simply that all belong. In fact, that understanding that everything belongs is the way to God. What Jesus taught us, or more precisely, what Jesus reminded us of was the universal post-tribal boundary-busting gate-opening nearness of God to all creation, period, full stop. A little sassy literature there for you. Press everything through that understanding, friends, and see what comes out the other end of the sieve. My guess, it, my guess is that whatever survives that kind of sifting will harmonize, now hear me, with all the best parts of all the great contributions of all the great wisdom traditions of all time. So in conclusion, dog whistle musicians, there you are. Hear me, friends. No need to be sectarian anymore, because Jesus 
No need to count anyone out anymore because Jesus, I'm about to whoop up in here. I got just enough Tennessee in me to make this loud, but I won't. Friends, there's no need to storm around the globe conquering and crushing all cosmovisions in the name of Western Christian dominance, friends, because Jesus. No need to overfunction in the world as if we are the gatekeepers to the goodness of God because of what we learned about God in Christ. Friends, love is the gate. Life itself is the gate. God is the gate, and God doesn't need our help determining who belongs on the inside and who belongs on the outside. Can you feel how freeing this is all becoming? How long have you been waiting to hear someone say this in church? (laughs) Friends, as best I can tell, I've always been angsty about these wild claims of Christian exclusivism. My entire life, I've been nervous about that. You see, I grew up between two very different cultures, colonial Catholicism and colonial Protestantism. And I was worried to death my whole life because both of them taught that the other one was taking everyone straight to hell and I didn't want that to be the outcome. I couldn't make sense of it. But the gate, friend, to the protection of God, the doorway to good life and abundance, it's not the teachings of the church, friend, it's the universal nearness of God to all creation, which is what we're saying when we say Jesus. Does that feel right to your head and your heart today? I see three or four very valuable heads nodding. $20 bills in the mail for y'all. Hear me, friend. Where are you at, man? Was I not clear about the... <laughs> I don't know who toys with who. If we, I don't know. There's only one. There's only one? Only one. It's only one. Oh, you're used to seven final thoughts. Listen. Listen. Hear me. Hear me, friends. The last words I'll say on this for a few weeks. Thank God I always doubted the outlandish, exclusivist claims of colonial Christianity. Thank God. They were always built on a very limited, culturally specific version of Jesus, and it was always too small. And thank God you doubted it too, because our doubt brought us here together to a brand new world where we can see now that whole world is pounding and pulsing and pirouetting with the life of God in all things. Hello, Doubt. We're so glad you're here. Welcome to breakfast. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Austin New Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on our Facebook and Instagram pages and head over to austinnewchurch.com where you can get added to our mailing list. Our services are also live streamed on Facebook and YouTube on Sundays at 1030 a.m. if you'd like to receive the full experience. We're so grateful for who you are and who you are becoming. Grace and peace be with you wherever you are.